Startup Nation, we tell you all the time that no one does anything great on their own. That includes starting a business or a nonprofit or even becoming a thought leader or an influencer. My point is that you need a team to do it successfully and responsibly. And that is why you should contact DR and Associates. Danielle and her team provide branding solutions along with digital and social media marketing that provide tangible results you are looking for. No matter if you are a Fortune 500 company or an author looking to make an impact, DR and Associates needs to be part of your team. They are one of the few firms whose leadership has been recognized by Google, which is proof of concept that they are very good at what they do. Contact DR and Associates today to grow your online presence. The number is 615-933-3681, or you can visit their website at drandassociates.com. Also, make sure you follow their Facebook page as well. DR and Associates, providing real clients with real results. Tresta powers this episode of The Startup Life. Okay, Startup Nation, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Tresta. Tresta is an app for iPhone and Android that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere. I know so many entrepreneurs that are still using their, their personal phone number for business calls. It can get complicated drawing the line between your personal and professional life. Startup Nation, this is the best business phone app out there. Whether you just need a business phone number or if your team is ready for a complete business phone system, Tresta is totally flexible and can grow with your business. And it's all unlimited. Calling, texting, and all of the powerful call management features like auto attendance, call recording, user groups, and more for just $15 per user per month. With Tresta, there's no contract, and you don't need any special hardware, just your smartphone you're already using. Tresta is easy to configure, so you can set everything up yourself, all online, avoiding all the hassle and high overhead costs of setting up a traditional business phone system, which is important because as entrepreneurs, we are always trying to cut cost and time. They're often a 30-day free trial so you can see if Tresta's virtual phone system is right for you. Communicate smarter and more efficiently with Tresta. Start now at Tresta.com forward slash Startup Life. That's T-R-E-S-T-A dot com forward slash Startup Life. The link is there in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast. Tresta, business communication simplified. It's time to be about that life. The Startup Life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation, I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson, and this is The Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. And today, Startup Nation, we have a, a great guest for you uh, on the show for today. Now, Startup Nation, look, there's going to be times in our businesses where, let's be honest, we screw up and we need to apologize. There's also going to be times where we didn't do anything wrong, but the perception that we did something wrong is going to be out there. So we need to know how to navigate that. So which is why we have the perfect guess on how to navigate that for you today, Startup Nation. He is a publicist, a writer, and an occasional musician. He founded the Public Relations and Digital Communications Consultancy, Essential Content, based there in Manchester, England. And he's also the author of the Apology Impulse, How the Business World Ruins Sorry and Why We Can't Stop Saying It. He is my friend, my mate from across the pond, Sean O'Meara. How's it going, Sean? Quite a lot. How are you? Glad I, to be here. I can't complain, man. I can't complain. Are you ready to pour some knowledge in the Startup Nation today? I am ready. Let's do it. All righty, let's do it. So let's let's hop right into it, Sean. Fascinating book. But before we get into the book, I just want to hear your origin story. Kind of share with us what Sean's all about, where he comes from, and all that great stuff. Cool. Okay. So I've got a kind of weird 
backstory. Okay. Uh, trained as a musician, that's what I studied uh, at university, and then kind of fell into journalism in a, in a weird sort of way. Blame my brother for that. He, okay. he was... Um, he was involved in publishing. He, mm. he had a startup before you called them startups. This was back in the late 90s. He was uh, a dog trainer. That was his day job. And what he realized was that he couldn't get any good information about normal dog ownership. The only stuff you could really find was the kind of very uh, niche kind of show dog uh, results, that kind of thing. So he, right. he created a website for your your regular dog lover mm-hmm. and then um people loved it so what happened was kind of the uh the publishing model in reverse so he started online and then went into print which is kind of back to front now but um obviously it was more expensive to go into print uh when he went into print he needed somebody who uh, could spell uh, <laughs> to do his proofreading. So gotcha. I, was, I was finishing university and I had two choices uh, one summer. One was to go and work in a tin factory, which uh, wasn't as appealing as you might think. It was kind of the local employer for, you know, short-term uh, students who were on their summer holidays. So I, I tried that for a week. Uh, I, I wasn't cut out for it. I wasn't... Um, tough enough let's say so I took I took my brother's offer and started off proofreading and then I worked my way up through his company and that's when I I realized that uh, journalism might be a a career for me and the good thing about writing about dogs is that you you cover a lot of ground because you've got your dog your dog needs food so you need to learn about dog food right you need to learn about nutrition you need to learn about health pet insurance legal stuff so it really gave me a, an unexpectedly good grounding in consumer affairs journalism so then uh, i moved on into uh being a consumer affairs writer and then i did what a lot of uh journalists tend to do which is uh, what we call moving over to the dark side. So I went from being a journalist, receiving uh, pitches from publicists to becoming a publicist. So it was kind of poacher turned gamekeeper a little bit uh, or gamekeeper turned poacher. And then what I realized was I had really, really good informal training as a publicist because I'd I'd been on the other side of the fence. I'd had, you know, probably in my time as a journalist, I I dare say, let's say 50 pitches a day for five, six years. So I, I, I learned on the job how to write a good PR pitch. And interesting. That's, that's kind of what gave me a bit of confidence to, to move over. So I did some in-house stuff. Um, and then I was freelance. Now the freelancing was good, but what I didn't know at the time that and and this is something I'm glad I know now is that even if you're freelance, you need to treat yourself as a business. I heard that. What I was doing was I was uh, you know I was kind of charging for my time rather than charging for my skill. Mm. So uh, the freelancing got messy. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't running it properly. So I ended up going back in house. Uh, then went agency side, which for me was hell. Couldn't couldn't stand the agency life. So. <laughs> And I can explain why, you know, that's maybe a whole other podcast, but the whole, uh, 
the whole the whole vibe didn't sit with me. I, I found that the the image of agency life, you know, ping pong table in the office, beers on a Friday, it was all really that felt like cover for uh, not treating the staff properly and overworking them. And I saw a quote the other day, which was kind of workplace informality is is the first step towards. Um, removing your employees rights and well-being and I, I felt that a few years ago so I ended up going it alone again uh, with with the intention of um, taking myself seriously rather than just being a kind of seat of the pants freelance guy I thought I need I need to be a business I need my clients to look at me as if I'm a business gotcha. so I started really slow um, really kind of took my time didn't really focus too much on growth focused more on getting the fundamentals right and making sure that my clients were happy and once i got got my head around that and and figured out you know what can i pretty much guarantee them uh i i then started adding in little bits it was, i guess it was kind of like making a soup and okay. you, get, you get the you get the stock kind of good and you know that it's not gonna you know taste too horrible and then you experiment and you think well maybe i'll throw this in and see how it goes so i was a publicist i was running my uh publicity and content agency for uh, a few years and then i had a what people would call a a light bulb moment which led to the book so what happened was the one of my favorite clients um who it was a kind of family-owned logistics firm and as part of their logistics operation they offered uh removals storage shipping executive relocation commercial relocation so they had trucks um they had warehouses they had former military uh people working for them gotcha it was a great company and i loved uh, well, it still is a great company. I don't work with them anymore. Right. Uh, we're still friends. There was a conversation. My client rang me and he said, I've, I've got a problem. We are getting, uh, we're getting heavily criticized on Twitter by one guy. Uh, and he said, <laughs> here's, he said, here's what's happened. This guy, he shipped some tools from the UK to New Zealand and he didn't complete his customs declaration correctly. Mm-hmm. And now his tools are held in uh, New Zealand. He needs to go and do this job that he's kind of traveled over for. He doesn't have the right tools. He's, he's losing his mind and he's blaming us. So I said, okay, well, let's prepare a response. Now, the, the first instinct I had was, we'll start with sorry and we'll work from there. So I said, okay, we need to apologize. As soon as those words left my lips, the client said, well, I'm not apologizing because okay. I told this guy weeks ago that he needed to, to, to get this paperwork sorted because we've seen this before. We can't do the paperwork legally. It has to be the owner. Uh, we can advise, which we did. He ignored us or you know, forgot to do it. So we're actually not at fault. And I pushed back a little bit and I said, yeah, but you've kind of got to apologize. This, this guy's annoyed. Uh, people are seeing the criticism. And the client said, well, if we apologize, it's, we're publicly accepting that we've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. and we haven't done anything wrong and i don't want to do it basically so he overruled me and we had to work from a a different playbook from that moment on so okay. but right if we can't use sorry what do we do 
And so I went away and I said, right, we need to explain. We need to be sympathetic, but we need to explain. So we, we responded to the guy and we didn't say sorry. We said, um, we understand that this is inconvenient and that <laughs> you're, you're going to need a solution. Here's what we think you should do. Here's what we told you to do. And we want to help you, but we just missed out the apology. And, that, and I sat back after that thinking, right, we are going to get a kind of barrage of criticism for this. He's right. going to notice that we didn't apologize. And he actually mm -hmm. surprised me. He, he came back and he almost apologized himself. Wow. And that kind of made me think, why, why have I been apologizing on behalf of my clients when they didn't necessarily do something wrong? So from that moment on, I started kind of monitoring corporate apologies and just seeing how many were for things that the organization didn't necessarily need to say sorry for. And also kind of looking at how good they were and looking at the little habits and trends and fortunately for me at the time, I was uh, working with an academic. He's actually, he's from LA, but he lives over here in Manchester called Professor Sir Carrie Cooper. And he, right. he's, a, he's a big deal uh, organizational psychologist. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to him uh, a couple of years before, just through chance. I was, I was looking for somebody to comment on a study that a separate client had done. And we hit it off. Uh, we worked together, um, you know, on articles, on um, you know, ideas. He would provide his expertise for free to me. Um, so I said to him, I think we should write an article about corporate apologies. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we started working on it. And we realized pretty quickly that there was just far too much to fit into one article. So right. What do you do when you've got too much for an article? <laughs> you write a book. So right, yeah. that kind of that is the potted history of how I went from wanting to be a musician to becoming a journalist, then a publicist, and then an author. And that's kind of it. There's there's a few twists and turns on the way that I've missed out, but that's that's kind of the short version. Got you. Thank you for sharing that. And and, and that's and that's a great segue. Thank you for setting that up, Sean, for sure. And the name of the book, Startup Nation, is The Apology Impulse. How the business world ruins sorry and why we can't stop saying it. And once again, you know, Sean, we talked off air a little bit about this fascinating book, great book. And the reason I like this book is because, oh, no, absolutely. Uh, and you talked about Sir Gary, Sir Kerry Cooper. He's actually the co-author uh, of this book, yeah. like you said before. And the reason I love this book is because a lot of times small businesses and entrepreneurs, they don't really have the war chest as a say, like the big companies, the Fortune 500 uh, companies have and stuff like that. But a lot of the stuff and the practicality uh, solutions in this book, you don't need a lot of money, if at all, if money at all, to kind of go the right way as far as like when crisis management or apologizing or not apologizing in that regard. So I was actually going to ask this earlier, but you kind of, you know, talked about it in your story a little bit, kind of talk about the explanation between there's times uh, to apologize, but there's also times to just explain, like how, you know, if I'm a small business owner, how do I make sure I determine which, you know, which one is the correct course? Like what are some of those factors I need to be mindful of? Okay, so the first thing any, any business owner should do, and, and, if, and I, I guess you've got lots of business owners listening to this. Absolutely. If you don't have a crisis management plan, do it today. Because the last time, that sort of the, the worst time to do it 
is when you're in a crisis. Fair enough. So, it's like insurance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, you'll be grateful when you've got it. And, and a crisis communications plan and a crisis management plan, it doesn't need to be complicated. You need to identify the risks that you face running your business. So make right. a list on a, on a piece of paper. What can go wrong? If you're a, let's say you sell, you've got a burger van, what can go wrong? So that, you know, the worst thing really that can go wrong is food poisoning, something like that. People get sick. Right. Um, Maybe, uh, you know, you hire somebody new and they're accidentally overcharging people. Maybe you do an advert and you use a word that you don't realize can be offensive to people in a different, uh, you know, local market. Right. That, that can happen a lot. That happened to McDonald's in Portugal. Mm. They, um, they had a promotion that leveraged the term Bloody Sunday. Now, outside mm. of Ireland, that's fine. But Irish people, maybe not now that we've got this virus going around, but Irish people go to Portugal. Irish people see this advert and they think, well, that's trivializing Bloody Sunday. That is a right. problem you probably didn't realize you had. So make a list, start with the most severe sort of catastrophic thing that you can do wrong as a business and then make a separate list, which is your values and what, what you, how you want to be perceived by your customers. What, what contract are you entering with your customers? So that, that could be lots of different things. Your insurance company, their, their contract is we're going to get out, try and get out of paying out, but within the law will probably pay out if you make a legitimate claim. So nobody expects their insurance company to be benevolent. But if you look at a company like Ben and Jerry's, their contract with their consumers is we care about uh, social justice. We care about the environment as well as selling you ice cream. You know, we're going to do some good. We're going to invest in these initiatives. So think about your values as a business. And then when something goes wrong, you need to look at, does that failure, A, have you infringed your consumer's rights? And B, have you let them down on, on the values that you promised to uphold? And they're two different things. So if this hypothetical uh, burger truck is, uh, you know, the burgers are fine, everybody's enjoying the burgers, but right. yeah, there's, there's something going on behind the scenes. Maybe, maybe men are getting paid more than women, Maybe their hiring policies aren't fair. That's part of the social contract that nowadays consumers demand. So absolutely, you've effectively got two ways to fail as a business. You've got an operational failure. Uh, you run out of burgers. That's an operational failure. And then you've got a culture failure. And this is something we talk about a lot in the book because they are two different types of crisis. And ironically, the, the operational failures are easier to deal with because consumers understand them better. So in the UK a couple of years ago, KFC literally ran out of chicken. Right. Um, They switched suppliers and there was a mix up and there was a period of about two weeks where, excuse me, there was a lot of restaurants shut down. Now that is a pretty big failure. KFC has one job. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They literally have one job. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And they failed, but they not only, kind of navigated that crisis. They turned it into a marketing opportunity. They, they laughed at themselves and they used adverts that kind of referenced their failure. And consumers forgave them. And the reason they forgave them was because they understood that mistakes happen. And right. the KFC had communicated, okay, we, 
we switch suppliers and there's been a supply chain issue. We don't have the chicken. That was pretty much the message. Right. But then your, your cultural failures, they're a lot harder to deal with because you're apologizing for infringing people's feelings rather than their rights. Mm. So, and there's been so many examples of this over the past few years where companies uh, and big organizations have done things not necessarily operationally bad, but culturally a little bit questionable. And these things just take off. They, they take on a life of their own. And they are so tricky to say sorry for because everybody has a different opinion about it. And that's, that's one of the big challenges. If a, if a flight is delayed, the, you know, everybody understands, okay, that flight was 10 minutes late or two hours late. Mm. And, and it's pretty much the same thing. It's the same level of inconvenience. But if that airline puts out an advert that offends people, you're going to have people who are massively offended at one end of the spectrum. And then you're going to have people at the other end of the spectrum saying, I can't believe all these idiots are offended. <laughs> and you've got to manage, you've got to manage all those different sentiments and right. you've got to make sure you alienate people because apologies can alienate as well as kind of repair. So Absolutely. it's just, it's really tricky. Thank you for sharing that. And Sean, speaking of airlines and, and you kind of poke fun at yourself a little bit about this in, in the beginning of the book, uh, you know, it, it seems like airlines apologize more than anybody. Uh, yeah. Right. It, and so uh, one particular airline, United, had you know, a couple of issues and it, they came up this infamous or famous or infamous word reaccommodating. So why did that word when it came to United, come, you know, reaccommodated come so cringeworthy? And why does it seem like airlines always apologize? The audio went, but I think I think I, I got the gist. Sorry so why, why do why do airlines tend to apologize what? more? Yeah, why does it seem like they apologize in like almost every other day? So if you, um, if you think about the average um, consumer, mm -hmm. uh, they, they tend to, you know, if, if you're buying a Starbucks, you think, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and grab a coffee. I'm going to swing by Starbucks. And if something goes wrong at Starbucks, you know, that the order's wrong, the milk's too hot, whatever, it's not the end of the day. And if right. you picture your average airline customer, they're already in a state of anxiety. The, the kind of the typical airline customer is, a, is pretty much one inconvenience away from losing it. And right. the airlines have to factor that in. Then you've got to factor in the fact that it is literally a metal tube flying through the sky. So right. airlines are fixated quite rightly with safety. So if it isn't safe, it's not taking off, um, hopefully. So what that means is they're much more prone. There's so many moving parts. There are so many things that can go wrong. They're much more prone to disappointing their customers because the alternative is to take risks with their safety. So airline customers are pretty much the, <laughs> the worst case scenario before you've even made a mistake. They are just waiting for things to go wrong. And what we, we also have to deal with as professional communicators is your customers now have a direct line to you via social media. Before social media, airlines were making mistakes, but you didn't give every single person on that flight a megaphone to shout at you with. Right. You may, you know, when they get off their delayed flight, you may hand them a form and say, here's your, your feedback form or your complaint form, get a refund, we're sorry. 
you could do that the whole world didn't get to see it now with um you know twitter especially you only need one person on your flight to have a a slightly meaningful twitter following you know they may have a blue tick and you see this a lot so you've got all the the all the operational risks and there there are so many of them there's delays there's crash landings there's uh mass groundings which happen to jet blue um that's the operational side then you've got the cultural side um, and you see things and i forget which airline it may have been american airlines but i i'm not gonna uh stake my reputation on that but there was gotcha. a u.s airline going back a couple of years and what they did um was they had a category of flyer which was kind of a friends and family scheme so if your mom or your sister worked for the airline you could get a set amount of free flights gotcha. which seems like a good thing now as part of that deal the airline had a policy that if you're getting on for free you need to uh, make a little bit of an effort here's a dress code so that kind of that seems fair enough i guess you don't want to be giving away free tickets to people and they turn up in you know their their gardening clothes or whatever so i I can relate to that but then when you try and actually put that into action you're going to end up in a situation where at some point somebody's son or daughter is going to be turned away from a flight because they're not dressed properly and just so happened that leggings weren't weren't permissible they were on the list of please please don't turn up for your flight in leggings Mm -hmm. now who wears leggings women right this has gone from a line item on a list to a gendered uh, act of discrimination. Right. If you're, if you're turning people away for wearing leggings, you're, you, you're discriminating against women. Exactly. So this policy, so it starts off as a, a good employee benefit. Your friends, your family can all get free or cheap flights. When you put it into action, you, you've got a situation where all, the, all the, the men and boys are getting on and the girls are being told, you can't wear leggings. Now, what happens if, if this particular situation occurs in front of somebody with a Twitter platform? You've right. got a headline. It's, it's already written. Um, you know, <laughs> Airline X criticized by influencer Y for sexist dress code. Mm-hmm. That's all you need to say. And then every viral news outlet in the world is going to pick up on that because there's, there's all the ingredients for a great story. There's a little bit of outrage, there's discrimination, there are victims, and then you've got this big corporate villain. So on top of the operational um, risks and responsibilities that an airline has, they've got all these other little things as well. And then you throw in the behavior of passengers. A badly behaved passenger on any flight pretty much always becomes the airline's problem. Because if they overreact, let's say they throw somebody off a flight for wearing headphones during the safety announcement that's a that's a big corporate airline mistreating its customers if they don't take action i.e there's a there's a customer there's a passenger on the flight abusing somebody or being rude to another passenger right if they don't get them off the flight they're they're almost encouraging that kind of behavior they're not taking their responsibilities seriously so as far as what kind of business do you want to avoid if you hate saying sorry Airlines do not run an airline. 
for sure for sure thank you for, for sharing that all right startup nation so i hope you're getting great value from sean's content but we gotta pay a few bills once again my name is dominic lawson and this is the startup life Startup Nation, do you have friends and loved ones that you want to do something nice for, but maybe they live in the next city, the next state, or even halfway around the world? Well, I have a solution for you. Koya is the new and best way to let your friends and family know you're thinking of them. Choose a friend, record a message, and hide it in a location that they are likely to visit and give them a clue. When they arrive, your message will instantly appear. You can even send them a gift. Best of all, the app is completely free. Get Koya.com to download it now. That's K-E-T-K-O-Y-A.com. Or check the link in the show notes. Koya, show you care when you can't be there. This episode is brought to you by Lena Creamer. Many of us love to power our morning with a good cup of coffee. However, sometimes we feel guilty because we will have to pay for that cup, or let's be honest, Startup Nation, that second cup on the treadmill later, especially when we add creamer. And that's where leaner creamer comes in. The gluten-free, sugar-free, lactose-free, but also guilt-free option for your coffee. It uses a combination of coconut oil and natural supplements to jumpstart your entrepreneurial journey for the day. Not a coffee drinker? No problem. Use it as a sugar substitute in your tea, oatmeal, or whatever else you like to sweeten. Go to leanacreamer.com and use the promo code STARTUP15 at checkout. If you're listening to the podcast, the link is there in the show notes. Lena Creamer, begin a healthy new chapter. Oralex powers this episode of the Startup Life. Startup Nation, as a podcaster, radio host, and business owner, I know a thing or two about the need for your message to come through clearly to your target audience. The last thing you want when trying to close a big deal over the phone or giving a sales presentation in your conference room is to have the person you are talking to be distracted by either the fact that you sound like you're in a warehouse or an outside noise like a fire truck. Trust me, Startup Nation, I know this all too well from experience. And that is why Oralex has your back. Oralex Acoustics creates professionally tested products that you can trust in a commercial space or at home. Better office acoustics improves intelligibility when video conferencing or generic conversation reduces stress and helps build a proactive work atmosphere. From a home studio for my content creators to your office space downtown, your gear performs better in an acoustically treated room. Trust me, you are in good hands with Oralex as they are the number one brand in acoustics, providing trusted solutions for over 40 years. Also, you can download the Oralex Acoustic Treatment mobile app in the Apple or Google Play Store to give you specifically designed and instantaneous recommendations for various room types. Go to Oralex.com and use the promo code STARTUP in all caps for 10% off your entire order. The link is there in the show notes if you are listening to the replay on the podcast. So if you are ready to stop sounding like you're having a sales meeting in a sports arena, go with Oralex. Professional audio made simple. Welcome back, Startup Nation, as we continue our conversation with Sean O'Meara, the author of The Apology Impulse. You know, but in that same vein, uh, Sean, I, I want to ask you this because, you know, we live in a very PC, you know, I'm not going to say easy to get offended, but it's like there's a lot of landmines out there, right? You know, yeah. so it's like when you're a company or small business owner, startup founder, entrepreneur, whatever the case may be, 
it can be kind of difficult when to apologize, when not to apologize and stuff like that. And so that's why this is a great book, uh, Startup Nation, The Apology Impulse. We have a link in the show notes for you to purchase that book uh, uh, straight from you know Amazon or wherever else you like to get your favorite books. And it's also available uh, in audio version as well. Uh, if for those of you who like to you know read your books or listen to your books while you exercise or work out or work in your business and stuff like that, we have the link in the show notes for that as well. Now, Sean, when I was reading the book, man, I feel like when you talk about Tony Hayward and Startup Nation, if you don't know who Tony Hayward is, he was the guy who was running uh, uh, BP at the time of the, the great Gulf Coast oil spill in the Gulf Coast here in the United States. And so honestly, man, I feel like you could have written, you could have written an entire chapter dedicated to Tony. Because like, it, it, because, you know, it seemed like he just kept getting in his way. Why was that happening? What was, what was Tony's issue? Like, it just seemed like he just kept getting in his own way. And what can we learn from that? So I think the short answer to the question, what was Tony's issue? Yeah. Tony's issue was that he was an engineer, not a right. communicator. Fair enough. He, I kind of, when I was writing the book, uh, Carrie and I, we, we felt like we got to know these people. And I ended up, I ended up feeling a bit sorry for Tony because he was... I did too, actually. Yeah. He was CEO of a huge company going through a huge public crisis. Now, he he wasn't a trained communicator. He'd got to where he'd got to because he was a good engineer and he was right. good with numbers. And right. that's fine if you're running an oil company until one of your oil wells spring a leak. So what he did, his his big mistake, and this is one of the key takeaways from the book, is... Your apology should never, ever be about you. doesn't matter how good your apology is. I hear that. The people, the people you're saying sorry to do not care about how, how this situation makes you feel. Absolutely. Now, that truth, that, that gets amplified and magnified the more severe the situation. And right. the, the, the BP oil spill was pretty severe. Now, people forget because... Tony's apology was so bad. They forget that people actually died uh, during, right. during this situation. There right. was, I think it was and people lost their lives. Now, Tony had kind of, um, he, he'd got an F minus pretty much all the way through this. And then just to make sure he definitely, definitely didn't pass. He, during a press conference, <laughs> he was trying to apologize for something else. And I think, you know, this is the irony of it. He was sitting in front of a room full of journalists and he said, nobody wants this over more than me. I want my life back. Now, right. that whole crisis. Oh, is, that's, that's, that's hard to hear, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And I, I'm sure the people who uh, literally wanted their life back were the 11 poor people that died. Exactly. So it was just a moment where he let his guard down and he, he permitted himself to, to put his feelings and his needs before the needs of not just his customers, but the people affected by what happened. And there were so many different people that were affected by it. You know, you have environmental groups that have got to do the cleanup. You've got uh, businesses on the Gulf Coast. You've got hotels, restaurants, leisure businesses. They're all affected. You've got pension holders. Um, a lot of pensions were, were dependent on the performance of that company. Right. So, his big mistake, really, and he wasn't a charismatic communicator to begin with, was making it about himself. And that is, 
if, if people read the book and they take one lesson and one lesson only, it's, it's don't make it about yourself because even the best apology in the world is going to get ruined if you bring your feelings into it. So for sure, keep it about, you know, what you did and the impact it's had and what you're going to do about it. For sure. For sure. Now, I, I know you mentioned in the book that sometimes there are certain apologies that are, uh, you know, are often or best given by men and some are often or best given by women, whether it be operational or like a social type of thing. Do you think they probably should have, you know, maybe gone in a different direction when it goes to BP and Tony Hayward, not necessarily with a, a woman or a man, but just somebody else who was probably a better communicator in that regard? Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the big problem and you, and you see some uh, organizations, you can tell the moment they realize, oh, this isn't working. Let's, right. get, let's get this person away from the microphone. Exactly. Uh, BP didn't do that. They kind of left him to struggle in public. And they eventually did kind of move him to one side and they brought in uh, an associate, I think, of Dick Cheney, who was, mm-hmm. who was used to dealing with criticism. Right. And they, they let that person handle it. I, I forget the person's name. Um, but going back to your, your point about men and women now, that's, I didn't, I kind of hesitated about exploring that because I thought for sure, if, for sure, if somebody reads this, if somebody scans the book and they see me kind of talking about how, how different, uh, different genders communicate, I could be the one apologizing. For, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> for, right. For I definitely being, understand for, that. Yeah. I had to be really careful about how I, how I talked about it. And it was based on uh, a, a few different studies and they really were to do with um, perceptions, consumer perceptions. Absolutely. And yeah. The reason that we, we tend to respond better to women apologizing is it's actually down to old fashioned sexism. And I hear that. Okay. So when you know when so let's go back to the operational and the cultural so when an operational failure happens what you what you really want is a solution so due due to like our own inherent biases ah okay we we think men are going to deliver the solution better than women so we respond better as consumers to a a male figure now we shouldn't do and there's lots of reasons and lots of you know, fantastic female CEOs and CTOs out there who can solve problems better than I can, better than Carrie Cooper can, better than most men. But because of how consumers perceive women leaders, we don't really realize it. And the flip side of that is when it's more of a cultural feelings-based failure, women tend to be perceived better. And the what that says is... It, it's kind of a, it's a, ref, it's a bad reflection on us as consumers, but it also, it feeds into a little bit about how organizations themselves want to be perceived. Right. And when, so going back to Mark Zuckerberg and, and Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, and the various other scandals that Facebook and Zuckerberg have had in the past few years, there was a turning point uh, a few years ago where, he was in, uh, is it is Congress? Is it Congress where they get dragged in and they have to answer questions? Yeah, like Senate hearings, something like that. Yeah, yeah. pretty much, yeah. 
Yeah, pardon me, Senate hearing. So he was at a Senate hearing. And then the next time Facebook had to go to one of those, he, he wasn't there. And um, the, the person who went in his place was uh, going to just hesitate here. I'm, uh, Cheryl Cheryl. Sandberg? Yeah. yeah. Was, <laughs> that's the name. Um, gotcha. And Facebook was automatically perceived more positively because, A, I think people were just sick of hearing Mark Zuckerberg say sorry. That's and true. B, because Cheryl, again, I'm not saying this is true, but she was perceived to be more warm she was perceived to be more compassionate now i'm, I'm gonna sort of go out on a limb and say you put anybody next to mark zuckerberg and they will come across as more compassionate and more warm that's that's fair right yeah he kind of had a bit of a like a kind of a bit of a tony hayward in him in the regard of like you know he, he's not very charismatic or anything like that you know what i mean so yeah. no i definitely understand that yeah um and I, I think Jack Dorsey was there as well. Um, mm -hmm. And Google were notably not there. I think they empty chaired them. I, I think the, the Senate hearing actually pointed right. a microphone at an empty armchair right. uh, to, to kind of highlight the point. So Cheryl's there. And you know, in her own right, Cheryl is an exceptional leader. And uh, you know, she, her, her resume speaks for itself. She doesn't need me to say, isn't she great? But it was really interesting that Facebook obviously thought, right, it was either let's put a woman front and center or let's just move Mark to the side. People, right. people, you know, his, his face is great on people. So yeah, the, the woman versus man thing, um, it, is, it is a thing and companies tend to uh, kind of, it's a self-fulfilling self thing because right. companies read these studies and they go, ah, oh, consumers respond better to women when it's a cultural failure. So, okay, who's our most senior woman? Let's, let's get her, her out there. Right. Now, if, if we keep repeating that, consumers will get used to, uh, you know, who's apologizing. Well, you know, an oil rig has exploded. We're going to hear from a guy. Oh, the, uh, the company has been criticized for, um, you know, gen gender discrimination in the boardroom. Let's get a oh, woman. Yeah, for sure. So it can be weaponized a little bit and, and right. organizations can hide behind their spokespeople as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's, it's important to highlight that because I mean, what, what I do know about the marketplace is that they're quite savvy and, and they pick up on things. And then after a while, I believe that, you know, especially in the world that we you know live in the me too movement and stuff like that, I think consumers were, you know, can, can start to pick up on stuff like that. Oh, they're just, trotting her out because she's a woman or oh, they're just trying him out because he's a man or, you know, for operational purposes uh, and stuff like that. Uh, and one thing I will say is that, you know, when it comes to uh, having somebody to apologize for it, you know, when you think about uh, Mary Barra of GM, she was out front and she, she took onus and she really has turned around GM from the you know crisis that they were having. So while it can be weaponized, we definitely have seen, you know, that, you know, women can definitely, uh, take any role on whether it's operational or cultural, and it doesn't have to be uh, weaponized, as you say. So I appreciate you sharing all of that for sure. Once again, we're talking to Sean O'Meara, the author of The Apology Impulse. Now, I know a few more questions before we transition, you know, to something else. Uh, I, I know as a kid, my uh, mom was a big fan of uh, British shows. And one of those shows is Are You Being Served? You talk about that uh, in the book about a certain joke that was told in the elevator. And as soon as I read it, I thought it was hilarious, 
right? <laughs> but if you're if you're not from if you've never seen Are You Being Served uh, or something like that, then you can obviously see you know how that can be a bit jarring of a joke that he made about you know yeah. uh, women's underwear or whatever the case may be. But he that guy decided he wasn't going to apologize either, right? Kind of share that story a little bit if you would, Sean. Okay, so this this is the one where the the lesson is certainly. Uh, there's two lessons here. Context is key. Absolutely. And the the kind of old uh, mafia saying, never apologize, never explain. So right. let's do do the background first. So sure. the, the start of Are You Being Served? Now, it's a little bit before my time, but I do remember the reruns. Right. Uh, the opening sequence is, uh, it's not really a song. It's, it's kind of background music. And you hear a, a woman's voice and she's announcing each floor as the elevator goes up. Because Are You Being Served is set in a department store. Right. So first floor, menswear. Second floor, children's wear. Third floor, uh, underwear. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard this joke been made in, in elevators in the UK. And it is, you know, it's a dad joke. It's a classic um, kind of harmless little, you know, you get in a lift. Right. On the same floor three, you say ladies underwear. It's just a joke. Now, if you've never seen the show or you've never heard the joke, and somebody gets in a lift and says, ladies underwear, you're probably just going to think that person's a bit weird. Right. If you don't, if you don't get the reference. Or if you're at an academic conference and the hot topic is already going to be uh, sexism and discrimination and a, a kind of, uh, I don't want to be rude, an older guy gets in a lift. He's probably quite senior. He was, he was a pretty well-known professor. Right. He gets in and he starts talking about ladies' underwear. It's going to make people feel awkward. Of course. Now, I felt really sorry for this guy as well because I just thought, hmm, you, you could have quashed the, the whole thing could have, could have gone away really quick if, if the person that had put in the complaint against him had accepted his, his explanation. He tried to explain. He said, I'm, right. I'm making a joke. You, you didn't get the joke, but if, you know, all the evidence is there that this, this was a joke. Here's the reference. Now, by him doing that, the, the person who complained, she, she dug her heels in. She wanted an apology. And it, it's one of those unfortunate situations where the more you try and manage it, it's kind of the Barbara Streisand effect. The more you, you, you want it to go away, the, the more people look at it. Right. And our, our wonderful viral news media really kind of whip that one up. So mm. I think objectively, if you, if you took away all the emotion and said, did, did this guy owe anybody an apology? I don't, I don't think the majority would say, yeah. I think most people would agree, um, okay, the joke was kind of corny and out of date. But if you think about the intent what possible intent was there that we could point to that he would, he would need to apologize for you. The, the, the intent behind a joke, unless it's, you know, deliberately uh, designed to marginalize or to, you know, make fun of um, people who you shouldn't really make fun of. The intent behind a joke is to make people laugh. And when you're getting right. in a lift and a lift's crowded, I, I feel awkward in crowded lifts. My, my instinct is to sort of say, say something to, kind of lighten the mood a little bit i don't do it but you know it's kind of it's there i'm, I'm always searching for something to say um fortunately for me I, I never think of something in time so i i guess i i escape but 
you know, you can understand why people do that. But he said it, people heard it, people complained. And the interesting thing about that scenario was he did refuse to say sorry. Right. And he refused to say sorry, even when this thing was in all the papers, uh, people were calling for him to be sacked because it, it, it takes on a life of its own. It's it no does. longer, this guy made a joke. Some people didn't get the joke. It becomes professor refuses to apologize over sexism row. And you kind of, you, you can remove the bottom layer. You can remove the fact that this is a guy trying to make a joke and you just say, okay, professor, um, position of influence, position of power right. in a lift with women. So a male kind of um, in a lift with women, sexism, refusing to apologize. When you throw it, when you just focus on that, you glance at it and you just take it in that context, it starts to look worse than it really was. So I was kind of watching that thinking, this guy's going to apologize soon. He's going to have no choice, but he didn't. And I kind of applaud him for it. Although that sounds a little bit mean. Right. Because if he had apologized, it would have devalued the whole idea of what an apology is. He clearly wasn't sorry. He was defending himself. So, you know, he, he, he maintained his integrity, in my opinion. I hear that. I heard that. Thank you for sharing that. And Startup Nation, like I said, once again, the book is The Apology Impulse. It has tons of stories and tons of anecdotes like that. There's there's one about Airbnb and going overboard with an apology, uh, which I thought was fascinating as well. Uh, and, and just other type of stories. There's even the one where you talk about uh, the one at the Oscars where they announced the wrong uh, you know, the, the wrong uh, award winner and stuff like that. And I thought in that one, that was very interesting because it really talks about, and it really highlights this, and you talk about this all over the book. It really highlights that the language jujitsu that people go through when it comes to apologize or not apologize, well, more so not apologizing. All right. Yeah. So startup, yeah. So startup nation, you know, I don't want to give it all away. So you got to purchase the book, the apology impulse, how the business world ruins sorry and why we can't stop saying it. I appreciate all of that stuff for sure. So I want to ask you this, let's transition, man, because you run a company, Essential Content. Just kind of tell us a little bit about the company and the work that you do there. Uh, so we pretty much do two things. We do uh, reputation. So that is uh, proactive comms, public relations, uh, reputation management, and we do content. So you're a business, you want people to understand better what you do, uh, what your story is. We, we help brands tell stories um, and communicate what they know as well as what they do. That's a very important thing that I tell all my clients is um, people don't really care about your product necessarily, but they might care about what you know. Absolutely. So um, we, we do the kind of on-page stuff, um, websites, uh, all, the, all those kind of owned media. Uh, but the, the bulk of what we do is uh, public relations. So trying to make our brands a little bit more famous, trying to improve their reputation, improve recognition. And what a lot of people don't realize about public relations as well is there's actually, there's a fair bit of boring but important stuff going on behind the scenes. So making sure things in the media are accurate, making sure they're fair, because something can be accurate but not fair. Absolutely. Um, you know, I had a, had a good example of that a, at the end of last year where a client 
um, an existing client got in touch and said, I've got a friend who runs a business and he's really worried because they're, they're moving from bricks and mortar to clicks and mortar. So they've got, they, they were a health food, uh, kind of fast food, health food kind of thing uh, on, on a few high streets. And they were going to get rid of their high street locations, move to a kitchen, a kind of commercial kitchen and do delivery. And their worry was if their high street presence disappeared, what, what would it be reported as? Um, and they were right to worry because if, if a shop starts disappearing, it looks like they've gone bust. So they right. said, we really need to um, kind of communicate that we're still here. We're just changing. So we, we were able to, you know, through outreach to media, through uh, briefing the media with you know, press releases, giving them access to decision makers at this company, tell that story positively. Because if we'd have just left it, what would have happened would be somebody on Twitter goes, hey, this, uh, this shop's closed. What's going on? And then someone else goes, oh, it looks like they've gone out of business. Their, their shop over in my neighborhood is closed as well. So that's kind of the less glamorous side of public relations. And one thing we try and do as a business is explain to our clients and to people who aren't clients as well, we try and educate generally, is um, whether or not you hire a public relations company or you have a public relations specialist or even a whole team in your business, public relations is something you should be doing all the time anyway. It's not an add-on. It's kind of, it's part of the whole secret sauce to what makes your business good. Your, your right. image, your reputation, um, it, it should be part of your daily thinking. And I think because a lot of businesses don't take that approach, um, that's why you do see a lot of the kind of going back to the book. It's why you see a lot of these bad apologies and these reputational uh, garbage fires that, that just kind of keep, um, keep popping up. So we, um, you know, we're not a huge company. There's, there's a kind of gang of us and we, uh, we love what we do. And I think that's um, really important. Now, not everybody does, kind of get up in the morning and think, right, I need to make sure that my clients are fairly represented today. Uh, but, you know, as, as, a, as a small business owner myself, I, I do, you know, I take personally uh, the situations where my clients aren't, aren't treated fairly in the media. And it doesn't happen every day, but, you know, I like to kind of, I think it's a little bit like um, kind of, talking myself up a bit here it's, it's a little bit like being a boxer you don't just get in the ring you've got to um you've got to spar a little bit and, right. and sharpen your your instincts and things like that so um yeah that's us we're based in uh in manchester where, uh in the north of england and we've got clients all over the world and we every day we're learning different things about different uh different markets different cultures a bit and you know it's, it's a it's a great gig um i i feel really lucky to do it and obviously it brings opportunities like talking to you and and writing a book and things like that so it's a cool industry the the irony is pr has a bad reputation i i'm still trying to figure out why why did we let that happen we are the reputation people yeah right. people you know when you say picture a pr person a pr guy or a pr woman you don't you don't have a positive association with those things. You kind of think of a, a slick, kind of misleading, 
sort of uh, shadow figure. And we're not. Right. We're, we're, you know, we're here to help. Right, of course. And, and I imagine it's because, and it alludes back to what you were saying and the book, I, I, I imagine it's because the whole thing is like usually a PR firm is hired when something bad happens, right? And somebody doesn't want to apologize, doesn't want to apologize correctly. And so it's like, you know, there's that, you know, the PR firm here, they come with the, 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 you know, uh, wordsmith jujitsu again, you know what I'm saying? And not really, you know, I wonder if that's what it is. What do you think? I think it is. Yeah. I think, um, which is unfair, which is unfair yeah. because I imagine there's, you know, you do a lot of uh, you know stuff on the opposite side of that spectrum as well, but I'm, but I'm sorry. I mean to cut you off. No, 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 it's fine. Um, you're right. I think when you look at most, most big scandals, if, if you dig deep enough, there is a publicist in there somewhere. Right. And the publicists that, I mean, the, the kind of rule of, of doing publicity is never to become the story. Mm-hmm. Once the publicist um, is the story or is part of the story, um, it, the, whole, the whole thing is a failure. And, and in the UK particularly, um, there are a few high-profile publicists who I, you know, so I think some of them are okay, but on the whole, the, the kind of image of publicity is... You know, oh, here they come. They're gonna, they're gonna sort of pull the the wool over our eyes a little bit and do a bit of misdirection. Right. And we are guilty of that as as an industry. And I'm not sitting here saying, and we're here to change it and save the day because you know sometimes we have to get our hands dirty a little bit as well. Um, but our our goal is always to to protect the client's reputation. But it, it's a self. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a self-rectifying system. You can only protect the client's reputation if there's something left to protect. And if they truly have done, done something really, really bad, um, you, you can't. You, you have to step away. I've had that situation where I've had to sit down with a client and say, we're, we're screwed. This is bad. Um, you just need to take this one on the chin. And I've had some near misses with clients as well. I still remember the client who rang me and said, one of our trucks has crashed into a doggy daycare truck. Mm. And my, you know, the mental image of a kind of truck on its side and dogs, fortunately there were no dogs in the truck. Right. But for a second, you know, that image in my head was like, right, well, that's the end of that. This, this is going to be bad. Right. And I bet um, the image was not even necessarily full grown dogs, but puppies, right? Like cute, yeah, cuddly cute, puppies, right? Yeah, the cutest puppies you can think of. And exactly. <laughs> the, 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 the one photo that gets taken, it, it looks like the driver's laughing. That right. kind of thing. Because right. you know, these, these are optics. These are optics matter. And, you know, the, the kind of what happened and what it looks like cannot, can often be two, two really different things. Uh, you know, you only need to kind of be, be rubbing up against against something even slightly shady and then you you kind of you get infected by it and and you, you can't wash the stink out of, of some you know some situation there, sure. is, there are public figures that don't work today you know former celebrities because they are they're just associated with you know thing, things that stink right. and sometimes it's justified sometimes it really isn't right 
Right. Thank you for sharing all of that for sure. So before we go ahead and cut out today, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your sharing your time, sharing your value. Once again, Startup Nation, the book is The Apology Impulse. We have a link there in the show notes for easy access for you to purchase uh, that book. Uh, you gave amazing value about, you know, how to apologize, when not to apologize and everything in between, Sean. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, but for now, I'm oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, but now I'm actually going to turn the microphone over to you because there's an entrepreneur out there that's feeling either stuck in their business or they're afraid to start, man. Give them some words of encouragement to tell them to keep moving forward. Okay. So I, I struggle with giving advice because I'm bad at taking my own advice. So I'm going <laughs> to, I am going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to the person who's, who's uh, thinking of, uh, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they're in a job they don't like and they have an idea. All right. I'll, I, there's, there's, there's two kind of people I want to talk to. So I'll talk to that person first. If, if you're okay. in a job you don't like and you, you want to change and you, you think you've got something you, you can turn into a business, ignore everybody that tells you to just do it, to just take the leap. Don't do that. What you need to do is start slowly, a couple of hours a day, because if you, if you give up your job and you hit you know, a, a rough couple of days that's going to frighten the pants off you and you're and you're going to be without a job so the best way to do it in my opinion and it is only my opinion is to develop it on the side keep the job uh you know use use your lunch hour use an hour in the morning what i did years ago is i just got up two hours earlier and did, did my kind of pitching and and client development for my side business before I went into the office. Now I'm lucky enough not to have to do that. So a lot of advice is, if you wanna run your own business, you've gotta take major risks. You don't have to take risks, but you don't have to risk your livelihood. If you're in a job you hate, stick with it for a bit and just use those little bits of free time. Um, if you can get away with it, and you know, don't tell anyone I said this, but you can do it at work as well. There's tricks you can use, you can sort of have a spreadsheet open and kind of, tab back to that if your boss comes but you know do it gradually prepare yourself to make that jump don't just sort of dive in and think right i'm ditching the job i'm going to do this only do that if you've got the cash to support yourself for three months that is my uh my my first bit of advice my second bit of advice is to the person that's made the made the leap and is running a business now when you run your own business you are going to have low value days where you can't think of a single idea. You can't, you know, you can't get things done. You're sitting, staring at your computer screen or staring at your notepad. Now, you have those kind of days when you work for other people, but in that situation, you've just got to pretend that you're being productive. You have to wait until the clock hits 5.30 or 6, and then you go home and you just think, right, well, I didn't really do much, but I'm pretty sure nobody noticed. When you've got your own business, you don't have to perform that. You don't have to go through that charade. So what I have is a, what I call a jacking in policy, where if you're having a low value day, you're not getting anything done, go and have a low value day somewhere else. Go and do it at the park, go and walk the dog, go to the beach, go to a museum, do something where you can be low value, but enjoy yourself. Don't torture yourself sitting in an office or sitting at your desk if it's not happening, because some days it just doesn't happen. And that jacking in policy that I have has saved me so many times and every time I do it I come back the next day 
feeling better, more productive, more creative, and better, better equipped to solve problems. I hear that. Thank you so much, Sean. And that's going to wrap up this session of The Startup Life. Sean, did you enjoy being on the show, my man? It was an absolute pleasure. I've done a lot of uh, podcasts, and this was up there with the best. Really enjoyed oh, it. Thanks oh, for having me. Oh, man. Don't, don't butter me up like that. I appreciate that. <laughs> As always, Startup Nation, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on our show, send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or even on your Facebook timeline or any other platform you like to get your podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. You can also listen to the show on the Startup Life Podcast new website. There you will find the all-new startup blog where I write on many topics that are interesting and helpful to you on your path to entrepreneurship. And hey, If you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.